Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of abuse, kidnapping, and death that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In 1974, 19-year-old Nancy Ritland attended a Bible study at a home in Wisconsin. But it wasn't an ordinary meeting. A 34-year-old traveling preacher from India named Ramachandra Bahara captivated an audience. While sitting in the living room, Nancy felt caught up in his words. She learned that Rama had been a Hindu, but converted to Christianity years before. His combination of Eastern and Western spirituality was unlike anything she'd ever encountered. Rama brought an amount of emotion, passion, and heart to his sermons that other pastors didn't possess. Plus, Rama wasn't just a charismatic pastor, he also healed. According to Nancy, after Rama finished his sermon, he said, quote, I have a vision of a black crow sitting on someone's right foot. Who has problems with their feet? Nancy's eyes widened. She couldn't believe it. She'd been dealing with an excruciating foot problem since childhood and raised her hand. Rama told her to place her hand on her foot. As she did, he spoke in a mysterious language. When he finished, she lifted her hand and discovered her foot was completely healed. The miracle left Nancy awestruck, and she decided to become a follower. She wasn't the only one. Over the years, thousands were drawn to Rama's charisma, insight, and healing powers. But as Nancy later found out, they had no idea what they were really signing up for. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, its leaders, and its followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Today, we're taking a deep dive into a group known as the Followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, formed in Wisconsin in the mid-1970s by Rama Chandra Bahara. This week, we'll chart the course of Rama's rise to power, the abuses he made his followers endure, and how he escaped legal action for years. Next week, we'll see how Rama became more and more hateful and hatched a plan to take over a town of 9,000 people. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some... The gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. 
That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. There are many reasons why people embrace religion. Among these is a belief that a benevolent force exists to give life purpose. It comforts believers to think that another entity has a plan to direct their lives. But sometimes pastors and other spiritual leaders can take advantage of this desire to believe. They place themselves in the role of a god and dictate what people can do. This was the case with the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, led by Ramachandra Bahara. Born on April 1, 1940, in a small village in eastern India, Rama entered a family within a strict Hindu community. In this environment, young Rama felt inspired to become a sadhu, or a holy man. Beyond that, much of Rama's early life remains a mystery. The only information we have comes from scattered stories Rama told his followers over the years. He claimed his father often left for business, so his mother and grandmother raised him and his younger siblings. His grandmother was a devout Hindu who regularly made sacrifices in the temple and supposedly drank water with animal dung in it. She believed this proved her devotion to the gods and improved the chances of Rama becoming a religious leader. Because of her investment in Rama's future, she kept a close watch on him. If he slacked in his study, she would tell his father when he got back from his trips. As punishment, Rama's father would draw a circle in the sand, give him a book to read, and make him study for the entire day. The punishment fit the importance his family placed on education. They viewed learning as essential to success and eventually sent Rama to a boarding school at a young age. That way, he could continue learning while preparing to become a sadhu. While there, he woke up at dawn, did his chores, and performed his prayers and sacrifices. Then he spent the rest of the day and most of the night studying. If he felt tired, he put pepper oil in his eyes to keep awake. While he was working incredibly hard, his goals had shifted away from the hopes his family had placed on him. Instead of becoming a holy man, he strived to become a scientist. But he felt this dream could only be achieved by leaving India. So he wrote letters to the U.S., British, German, and Russian consulates, asking them for scholarships to their universities. And it seemed his hard work paid off. According to Rama, he was one of 10 students invited to study in the U.S. At around 1963, Rama says he began studying nuclear engineering at Columbia University in New York. But as much as Rama grew to love education in the U.S., One thing bothered him. He didn't like seeing the constant Christian influence on Western culture. As a devout Hindu and someone who later claimed he'd seen Christian missionaries do atrocious things in India, he saw Christianity as a false religion. Yet that belief didn't last long. One night while he studied, his room lit up and a golden being suddenly appeared in front of him. The mysterious figure said, quote, Rama, why do you fight against me? It's too hard for you. If you follow me all the days of your life, I'll be with you. I am Jesus Christ, the Lord. 
Rama felt an electric shock surge through his body. From that moment on, he believed Jesus Christ was the one true God and converted to Christianity. Suddenly, Hinduism became a false religion, and Rama seemed eager to tell anyone who would listen. Over the next two years, it seemed that Rama lost interest in his studies and instead focused on Christ. And as Rama continued on his new spiritual journey, he was forced to embark on a physical one as well. By 1966, Rama needed to renew his student visa. By law, he was required to leave the country and reapply. Instead of returning to India, though, he opted to spend his time in Jamaica. There, Rama met a 37-year-old American woman named Julaine Smith, who worked for a religious magazine. The two instantly struck up a connection. Rama possessed strong religious beliefs, and so did Julaine. Likely because of their strong beliefs, their courtship proceeded quickly. In October 1966, the pair were married in Julaine's hometown of St. Charles, Minnesota. Despite the quick arrangement, Julaine's family appreciated Rama's convictions and welcomed him into the fold. The marriage solved Rama's visa problem, but later that year he gave up his scholarship, studies, and prestige of his university in the name of God. He decided to pursue a new calling, missionary work in India. Rama and Julaine moved back to his home country, and while there, they had two children, Roby in 1968 and Deborah in 1970. But not everything about their time in India was great. Rama attempted to visit his family, but his father rejected him. Rama said his father hated his conversion to Christianity and that he'd married an American woman. According to Rama, his father was so furious that he hired assassins to kill him. Rama claimed a group of men tried to corner him in a room, but the Spirit of God gave him divine strength. He threw them off and escaped. Shortly after, Rama and Julaine gave up on their mission and returned to the U.S. in 1973. They moved close to her parents in St. Charles, Minnesota, where Rama began preaching at a local chapel. He spoke there for a while, but his sermons slowly became more radical. Over time, he began to condemn organized religion. While Rama believed in Jesus' divinity, he proclaimed that all church denominations were evil. He based this belief on his interpretation of the Book of Revelation. He viewed Christian sects as harlots and emphasized that the Catholics were the worst of them all. To further alienate his audience, he spoke directly to them and said that they would be damned because of their practices and beliefs. His congregation was disturbed by this change in his teachings and kicked him out. Yet Rama continued his teachings, visiting evangelical and non-denominational faith communities throughout Minnesota, Michigan, and Wisconsin. He attacked traditional Christianity. He even spoke against the Trinity and said that only Jesus, the Son, really mattered. Yet as heretical as these views were, they weren't rejected everywhere. Many embraced them. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to Stephen Kent, a sociology professor at the University of Alberta, during the 1960s, Western society seemed hungry for people like Rama. 
Kent argues that the upheaval at the time caused by events like the Vietnam War, race riots, and lack of faith in institutions prompted young people to turn to spirituality. In an article by the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, Kent says, quote, A lot of people in that period, young people, turned to religion, hoping that God would bring about the social and political changes that they had failed to achieve. Rama's followers in particular found him compelling because he blended Eastern and Western philosophies. At some of his gatherings, he'd take off his shoes and touch his head to the floor to pray. Then he'd give a Christian-centered sermon. Those who witnessed Rama preach felt that his distinct background gave him a unique spiritual insight. In late 1973, Rama ended his travels and bought a modest-sized house on a plot of land just outside Shawano, Wisconsin, a small town of 9,000. Throughout the mid-1970s, Rama used it as a base for his growing ministry, and his message continued to have a profound effect on people, especially a 25-year-old woodworker named Galen Preby. Galen first encountered Rama's teachings during a low point in his life. Although he was an accomplished artist and woodworker, Galen felt unfulfilled and wanted something more. He just didn't know what. Then a friend invited Galen to hear Rama speak. When Rama finished, he went around the room and talked to the attendees. He arrived at Galen and said, Son, I see you wandering here and there trying different things. Unless you give your life to Jesus Christ, you'll wander forever and never find the answer. Galen couldn't believe it. Rama seemed to have divine insight into his inner turmoil. At that moment, he decided to put his faith in God and allowed Rama to be his spiritual guide. Apparently, enough people shared Galen's experience, and Rama gathered a following of a couple of hundred people. Not long after, they started calling themselves the Disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, or the Brethren for short. Many of these disciples were working professionals who held nine-to-five jobs on the weekdays. Some lived near Rama's home in northeastern Wisconsin, but the majority lived in the state's southern region, nearly five hours away. That distance, though, didn't stop them from making the journey every weekend. On Friday evenings, Steve Ritland, Nancy Ritland's husband, would get off work and call Rama for directions. The Ritlands knew the route, but Rama insisted on giving them directions every week. Rama, it seemed, wanted to control every detail of his followers' lives, including how they drove. It's unclear what brought this turn. It might have resulted from Rama's strict upbringing and ideas about respecting authority. Or it could have come about from his supposed growing relationship with God. Around this time, Rama claimed that he'd received revelations from God. This might have given Rama the sense of authority to tell people what to do. Whatever the reasons, the brethren obeyed Rama without question. The Ritlands journeyed 250 miles to Rama's home in Shano, and usually arrived around midnight. Then, they usually slept in Rama's basement with other families. But after only a few hours of sleep, Steve would wake up at 3.30 a.m. to take a mandatory shower. Rama made everyone wash before each meeting, but the entire group consisted of 150 to 200 people. So Steve likely got up early to avoid having to wait in a line for the shower. After showering, he caught a few more hours of sleep and woke up again with the rest of the brethren at 6.30 a.m. But they didn't have breakfast. 
In another early sign of control, Rama often made them fast all day to show their devotion to God. Instead of eating, they had a morning worship service, and then Rama preached. During these services, Rama could go on for up to eight hours. Most of the time he'd give a sermon, but sometimes he'd stop when he claimed he'd received a divine word from God. In the middle of one sermon, he said, quote, the Lord has made known that Matthew and Anne should be married. People looked around the room trying to locate the two individuals. Within a few moments, Matthew and Anne stepped forward, but they weren't dating. They didn't even know each other, but they were so dedicated to Rama that they obeyed him. They spent 15 minutes getting acquainted and then got married. Clearly, Rama had an immense influence on his followers, but he wasn't satisfied with just arranging marriages. He wanted to control every aspect of his followers' lives. Coming up, Rama hungers for power and unleashes deadly consequences. It's October 20th, 2018, one day until the end of the world. I'm on the compound of a secretive religious organization, interviewing a longtime member. Their leader has predicted that tomorrow will be the beginning of the apocalypse. The prediction? Yes, I am prepared. It will purify life from a lot of illusions. When I started working on this story, I was hoping to profile a unique apocalyptic group that had survived through many failed doomsday predictions. But the end of the world was just the beginning. The only way to get to heaven was to allow him sexual activity with me. I didn't specifically give my consent. I was frozen at the time. The angels, they arranged that he is supposed to have sex with his students. He is an amazing teacher, and also he's a sick f This is Revelations, a Spotify original from Parcast, premiering Sunday, October 3rd. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. After experiencing a vision from God at Columbia University in 1966, Rama Chandra Bahara began speaking to various churches across the upper Midwest. Throughout the early to mid-1970s, the 30-somethings' unorthodox teaching, spirituality, and alleged miracles drew hundreds of people to him. As Rama gained notoriety, he settled down and had his followers drive hundreds of miles to his property for weekend gatherings. But even though the brethren were united by their trust in Rama, none of them were friends. Rama had encouraged them not to talk and build friendships with each other in a normal way. They were only to talk about religious topics. He likely told them that anything else would distract them from their relationship with Jesus. Instead of building a community together, they sat through hours-long sermons where Rama further brought them under his wing. He often spoke about God's wrath and the natural disasters he'd inflict on the U.S. for its sins. In what seemed like another play for control, Rama also discussed the evils of doctors, hospitals, and medicine. Rama only allowed olive oil and prayer for healing. 
because those were used in the Bible. And on a regular basis, Rama put his followers to work on various construction projects throughout his property. But they weren't building extra bathrooms, sleeping quarters, or any other facilities for the growing group's use. Instead, they worked long hours to create a library, prayer room, and other additions all meant for Rama. Over time, they transformed his modest home into an 11,000-square-foot complex. Galen Preby, a carpenter who joined Rama early on, said that Rama forced them to use their income to pay for his projects, and that money never went to buying proper equipment, so people risked injury all the time. During one build, Rama wanted to move a section of deck made out of steel that weighed several tons, about 300 yards. Rama had all of his followers, including some children, lift the platform. They'd count to three, move it a few feet, set it down, and lift it again. They got halfway to their destination and had just set it down when someone screamed the deck had been placed on a little boy's head. The workers rushed to lift it again and pull the child out. The sheer weight should have killed him, but the boy miraculously survived with minor injuries. Under normal circumstances, the boy would have gone to a hospital to get checked out, but Rama's laws forbade that. Rama just rubbed olive oil on the boy's head, prayed for him, and left. But even with such poor medical care, the child was one of the lucky ones. Some people lost their lives following Rama's will. On one occasion, a follower had lupus and needed kidney dialysis a few times a week, but Rama forbade it. Instead, Rama placed her in a small closet underneath the stairs and told her to pray for Jesus' healing. Rama made her stay there an entire weekend while the others went about their chores. Galen said they heard her wailing in pain. Everyone wanted to help, but they abstained for fear of disobeying Rama. The woman survived the weekend, but she died just a few weeks later. Galen suspected it happened because of Rama's neglect. During another meeting, Rama made his followers kneel on a cement floor. According to Galen, an older gentleman was too weak to get on the ground. So instead, Rama allowed the man to sit in a chair. But in the middle of the meeting, he experienced a respiratory issue and gasped for breath. Rama approached him a few times throughout the meeting. Instead of promising to get help or offering words of encouragement, he said, Brother, it's better for you to die among the brethren than to go to a hospital. Rama then explained that the so-called heathens at the hospital would do evil things to him. The man's condition only worsened, and after the sermon, a few men took him to a nearby member-owned house. Shortly after, the elderly man died. Galen said that when Rama heard the news, he sent someone over to the house to ensure the man had passed before calling an ambulance. Galen suspected Rama didn't want the old man being revived. It seemed Rama was so bent on control that he'd rather his followers die than leave him. One would think that all the abuse and iron-fisted control would cause people to leave, but very few did. If anyone skipped just one weekend gathering, the other members would gang up on them and tell them they were going to hell. And according to J. Gordon Melton, a Baylor University professor and founder of the Institute for the Study of American Religion, some people may have liked Rama's authoritarian rule. Putting their lives in someone else's hands was comforting for them. In the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, Melton said, quote, 
While you seed freedom, you gain all of the confidence and you get rid of responsibility, your security level goes way up. It seemed that members of the Brethren believed the trade-off was worth it. They gave up their freedom and mental well-being so that they could have Rama take on the burden of decision-making. And their deference didn't stop once they left on Sunday evenings. Rama also controlled them at home. Many people called Rama throughout the week so he could make decisions for them. He told them what brands to buy and even what sex positions were permissible. No decision was too small or too personal for Rama to make. Of all the people victimized by this, Galen was one of the most affected. He owned a woodworking company and created furniture for clients. But Rama ordered Galen to call him every day and tell him what pieces he was building. After hearing his schedule, Rama would share a list of items he wanted built for his home in Shano. Of course, Rama didn't pay him a dime. Because of his devotion, Galen's business virtually became Rama's. The profits went to Rama, and he ordered Galen to purchase a plot of land next to his complex. Ultimately, Rama's demanding control ran the business into the ground, and Galen declared bankruptcy. Even though Rama had wreaked havoc, Galen couldn't leave. He'd been in the group for so long that it'd feel like starting over, and he wasn't alone. By the 1980s, Rama's following had grown to roughly 3,000 people spread throughout the Upper Midwest. Two of those members were 24-year-old William Eilers and his wife, 23-year-old Sandy. The couple had married in September 1981, but their relationship turned sour instantly. While William had once been a fun-loving person who played in a rock band, he became depressed. Sandy said on their wedding night, he did cocaine and mourned the death of his father who'd passed away 11 years before. By late 1981, he'd sunk into such a bad mental state that it started to affect his performance at work. But that wasn't even the worst of it. William also began hearing demons who told him to kill himself. During this time of turmoil, Sandy got pregnant. They were in no shape to raise a child, so William reached out to his old high school wrestling coach, Bob Steenlidge, for help. As a member of the Disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, Steenlidge suggested the couple see Rama for a three-day weekend. When they first arrived, the brethren praised Rama and the numerous miracles that he'd performed. But then things became darker. The brethren advised the pair to cut ties with their family and friends because Satan would use them to draw them away from Rama's healing truth. The pitch worked on William. Their three-day visit soon turned into a 10-day getaway. And to their surprise, Rama himself even met with them to discuss joining the brethren and helping them with their marriage. But it wasn't a very pleasant meeting. Rama blamed William's struggles on Sandy. He said she was, quote, worldly in spirit and drawn to Satan. Desperate for answers, William clung to Rama's every word. When they left the leader, William berated Sandy for being such a depraved follower of the devil. At one point, Sandy suggested that Rama wasn't as good a leader as William believed, but William refused to hear it. Instead, he made his pregnant wife kneel outside in the mud while he verbally abused her. Understandably, Sandy didn't want anything to do with the group, but William wouldn't listen. He forced Sandy to pack up her life so they could move closer to Shano. As bad as things were, Sandy couldn't bring herself to leave him. She loved her husband, and it seems she felt too afraid to set out on her own as a single mother. 
So Sandy sank deeper into the group with William. When this happened, Sandy's parents visited to see if they were okay. However, once they made it to Rama's property, they immediately knew something was wrong. According to Sandy's father, neither Sandy nor William had, quote, any life in their faces. Their families pleaded with them to leave, but the couple stayed put and dove deeper into Rama's teachings. By the summer of 1982, the Eilers had spent three months with Rama, and Sandy was seven months pregnant. Despite Rama's distrust of doctors, on August 16th, William and Sandy went to an appointment at a prenatal clinic in Winona, Minnesota. When they were finished, they walked out to their car. While in the parking lot, two men suddenly attacked William and pushed him over. At the same time, two vans raced up beside the couple. The pair were split up and dragged into the vehicles before they sped away. After William recovered from the shock, he looked up and saw his sister, Kate. But she wasn't a captive. William quickly realized that she and the rest of his family had ordered the kidnapping. William tried to hit her, but the nameless captors his family had hired restrained him, twisting his leg and arm in the process. After a quick drive, the two vans arrived at a retreat building called the Tau Center at the College of St. Teresa, a Catholic school in Winona, Minnesota. Coming up, William's daring escape and Rama's revenge. Now back to the story. By August 1982, the parents of 24-year-old William and 23-year-old Sandy Eilers had seen Ramachandra Behera's cult in Shawna, Wisconsin, and were terrified of his sinister effect. To rescue their children, they paid a group of Catholic deprogrammers an estimated $10,000 to kidnap them. Shortly after arriving inside a Catholic retreat building, William saw six people who were presumably part of the plot. Six of them then took William and Sandy to separate rooms with boarded-up windows. William tried escaping, but claimed that his detainers handcuffed him to a bed. Then, according to William, over six days, they verbally and physically abused him. William learned that they were trying to make him renounce his belief in Rama through a process known as deprogramming. His family visited him during his stay and explained that they believed he'd been brainwashed. Despite his parents' good intentions, William tried to escape, but his jailers caught him. William screamed in pain, but they didn't care. As punishment, William claimed the kidnappers danced around him and mocked him, threatening to pepper spray him and force him to use a bucket if he needed the restroom. Today, someone known as an exit counselor may still try to help a patient leave a cult at a deprogramming facility. However, the process is supposed to be peaceful and caring, and the cult member can leave whenever they want. Back in the 1970s and 80s, though, a more intense form of deprogramming was more common. According to cult researcher and exit counselor Carol Giambalvo, the purpose of deprogramming was to shock people out of their beliefs. She explains it was believed that the hold of the brainwashing over the cognitive process of a cult member needed to be broken, or snapped as some termed it, by means that would shock or frighten the cultist into thinking again. Realizing that his captors only wanted one thing, William gave an empty renouncement of Rama. Feeling they'd made a breakthrough, the kidnappers decided to move the couple to another location. During this relocation, William saw his chance to escape. He just hoped his wife would join him. 
Just before they got in the car, William managed to grab a seat by the window. While they drove, William seized his moment and leaped out of the car. The vehicle ran over his foot, but he continued running and screaming for the police. Two of his captors tackled him and dragged him back, but William clung to anything he could get his hands on and continued screaming. Exhausted and probably not wanting to draw attention, the two men gave up and drove off without him. Free at last, William made his way to a nearby house and called law enforcement. The following Monday on August 23rd, William's story was in the local newspaper, but he still didn't know where his wife was. To his relief, she stepped forward a day later. She was at a halfway house for people leaving cults in Iowa City, four hours south of Winona. While there, she gave an interview to reporters, but her story was dramatically different. She said that the people who kidnapped her were, quote, very comforting, sincere, caring people. She didn't believe that her husband was abused. According to her, his family was present in the building for much of the time. She didn't think they would have allowed things to escalate so severely. Ultimately, though, she just wanted William to join her. Despite their different testimonies, both may have told the truth. Perhaps the kidnappers were harder on William because of his increased zealousness, and lighter on Sandy because of her eagerness to leave and because she was a pregnant woman. In a separate interview, Sandy said she had desperately wanted out, but felt Rama wielded his influence to control her mind and keep her there. While the term mind control may have sounded like an exaggeration, according to psychotherapist Sharon K. Farber, cults employ various tactics to destroy a person's autonomy. Farber claims that cults are initially welcoming to the newcomers. However, they then assault the senses through methods like sleep deprivation, starvation, and lecturing people for hours and hours, all tactics Rama used on his followers. According to Farber, this onslaught creates a moment when, quote, the mind shuts down and seems to snap from this assault to the nervous system. Snapping may happen suddenly and abruptly, or it may be a slower, more gradual process of subtle changes resulting in personality change. As reporters dug deeper into the story of William and Sandy, locals cast a critical eye on Rama. But even amid such negative external pressure, there were no reports of Rama's followers leaving him at this time. Several of his adherents even laughed off accusations about their leader. They viewed Rama as strict, but didn't find him evil. Although Sandy had wanted her husband to leave and be a part of her life again, that didn't happen. Rama's grip on William was too strong, and he returned to the cult. Sandy went to live with her parents. William had escaped the deprogrammers, but the saga with his kidnappers wasn't over. In August of 1982, William had an attorney file false imprisonment charges on his behalf. However, by October 1982, the jury dropped the case because the testimony had, quote, failed to prove the charges beyond a reasonable doubt. Yet William seemed undeterred, and he sued his five captors for $5.1 million on grounds that they had violated his civil rights. Two years later in that setting, a judge sided with William, but not for that sum. The jury awarded him $10,000 in damages because of his imprisonment by the deprogrammers, and the kidnapping case was put to rest. William and Sandy divorced, and William later left the cult of his own accord. After 
After the drama with the kidnappers, the estimated 3,000 disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ enjoyed a break from the spotlight. Some locals knew about Rama's allegedly manipulative behavior, but that was it. They weren't aware of the two deaths tied to the group. While Rama was finally out of the spotlight, his hatred for Catholics festered. He'd always thought they were satanic, but the kidnapping by Catholic deprogrammers only exacerbated his feelings. At some point in the 1980s, he commanded his followers to start researching the Catholic Church. Rama wanted dirt. And later on, he said he got it. The Brethren declared that the Catholic Church was responsible for countless evils throughout human history— They blamed events like the Holocaust, the Rwandan genocide, and the assassination of JFK on the church. But unsurprisingly, their prejudice wasn't founded on much of anything besides old, anti-Catholic conspiracy theories. A member of the Brethren, Miriam Sint, told reporters, When you ask how do we have solid proof, it's a whole compilation of things Catholics have done over the years. But neither Sint nor any of the Brethren ever presented any real evidence. And as Rama's prejudice grew more extreme, so did his spiritual views. He turned away from the non-traditional message he'd been known to preach. Instead, he took on more traditional Jewish beliefs from the Old Testament. Ever since Rama had started speaking, he'd focus on parts of the Bible that talked about God's anger instead of those that mentioned love. Rama may have been more attracted to the rituals and beliefs of the Old Testament because they emphasized God's wrath. In practice, Rama banned birthdays and Christian holidays. As one member put it, they were only allowed to participate in holidays that made them feel guilt over their sins. In the late 1980s, Rama began making his followers observe events like Passover, which commemorated God freeing the Jewish people from slavery, as well as Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. But Rama didn't just alter his theology to pseudo-Judaism. He also changed his name. In 1990, he went from Rama Chandra Bahara to Samantha Roy. It's unclear why he did this, but Rick Allen Ross, a cult expert and FBI consultant, suggested it was to distance himself from the deprogramming scandal that had shined a light on the group's questionable practices. By escaping that narrative, Rama made way for a new venture, a nonprofit called the Samantha Roy Institute for Science and Technology, or SIST for short. He said it was meant to help modernize India's educational standards by introducing policies from the U.S. At the time, no outsiders knew why Rama suddenly decided to create a school with such a vague and broad vision. He'd always been selfish, and that wasn't about to change. Amidst all the uncertainty, though, one thing remained true. Rama wanted more control. Through the school, Rama could rule people beyond his immediate circle, and he first targeted the nearby town of Shano. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of Rama Samantha Chandra. We'll discuss how he grew his school, the scandals that broke in the 2000s, and his plan to attack city officials who stood in his way. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. 
Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Cults was written by Rob Heckert, with writing assistance by Robert Tyler Walker and Giles Hovseth, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cult stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. The only way to get to heaven was to allow him sexual activity with me. These are not the people that you would normally associate with a cult. Do you think I need to be worried for my safety? I definitely think you should be prudent. This is Revelations, a Spotify original from Parcast, premiering Sunday, October 3rd.